today is a very special episode of Mentors on the Mic. Not only do I love this particular interview and all that I got from it, but it is a drumroll, my 100th episode of the podcast. I should really cue in applause right here. I cannot believe it's been 100 episodes. That's 100 episodes, including interviews with incredible mentors, bonus episodes, delving into the most interesting topics and advice. It's been a journey, guys. And it makes me a little emotional thinking back to almost three years ago. Each season, which is about you know 20 or so full interviews and a varied number of bonus episodes, stacked up to this 100 episodes. So there are some things I just want to touch on before introducing my guest, who is wonderful, by the way. Uh, I did a poll on Instagram and on my mailing list about what to do on this incredible 100th episode. Did you guys want tips? Did you guys want me to recap things? Did you want me to, what were some of the other suggestions I had? I was just going to play messages from you guys. Um, and having a celebratory sort of message before or an episode with a mentor was what you guys mostly wanted, um, closely followed by tips and recaps, which I will go over in other bonus episodes. Um, and some people voted for like celebratory messages to plan the podcast. So I'm thinking maybe I'll do that for like a three year anniversary thing. But here's some things I wanted to talk about. Oh, but also thank you to all who voted for this. And really, I, I've said this before, but podcasting can be pretty isolating. I do almost all of it by myself and my interactions with people on Instagram, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, reading your reviews um, on Apple podcasts, uh, emails, um, all of it just really helped me feel like there's a back and forth. And I'm not just like creating these and just like putting them off into the abyss and then just nothing, which is very much an actor's life. Um, but if you haven't yet, please follow me on Instagram at mentors on the mic and at Michelle Simone Miller. And let me know that you listened to this or what you like about it or even just like a congrats, Michelle, 100 episodes. Um, but I also do a lot of polls, like the kind of what I just mentioned on those. So I'd love to hear from you. And then if you haven't yet, please review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. I really I read every one and they make me so happy. And I occasionally share them on Instagram. I just shared one actually this past weekend. Um and also, there's a link in my bio in the show notes to join my mailing list. And that's where I send out an email with like a short personalized letter for me introducing my mentor that week and any bonus episodes I've shared. So be the first to get the update. And so again, the link is in the show notes to join my mailing list or in my bio on social media. And again, thank you for listening to this. If, if you've been with me since the beginning, since uh, my first episode with Emmy winning producer Stan Brooks. Thank you for still being here. And I'm so thankful to him again for being the first guest when I didn't know exactly what this would be. I did not think about a hundredth episode. I was like, let's just make sure this first episode's okay. But I powered through, guys. And this leads me to the second thing I want to mention, which is I want to share a little bit about how I started this podcast. I've shared a bit on other podcasts when I'm a guest and this question comes up, but I do think a quick origin story would be appropriate. So at the start of the pandemic, actors were really given more opportunities to stay creative during the craziness. And casting directors were giving actors chances to, to chances to submit to open calls or generals, some of, the call, some of them called, um, and so they could discover more actors. But really, I think it was just to provide a distraction from all of the craziness. But 
during that time, putting self-tapes and monologues and all that stuff together, I asked myself, what is something I've always wanted to do, but always told myself the excuse that I never had time for it? And starting a podcast was one of them. I'd helped a couple people in the industry who I knew start a podcast called Let's Play, Let's Play the Create Podcast, but I didn't think I could do one. It's like I kept asking, like, who was I to start a podcast, right? I didn't have a built-in community. I didn't have a message. I didn't know what I wanted to talk about. What service could I give that would inspire people to listen every week? And in retrospect, I wish I had just started one earlier. I wish I knew that the value of me being, of my experience as an actor was 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 helpful for people, that there was value there, or that my innate curiosity in people and their journeys, which really is this podcast, that was enough. I was enough. And instead, I waited until July 15th, 2020, to drop a trailer for Mentors on the Mic. My friend Jackie had bought me a book called So You Want to Start a Podcast, which I was very grateful for. She later was on the podcast, as was one of the hosts of Let's Play the Create Podcast. And I read the book, So You Want to Start a Podcast, thoroughly. I took lots of notes. I bought a mic. I joined a couple of Facebook groups. I learned from other people, like my friend Angelica, who does the A Little Bit of Everything with Me podcast. She Zoomed with me and taught me how to use the Audacity editing software, which I currently use still. And it's free, by the way. And I chose a hosting platform, which was also free. I made my cover art on Canva, which was free, but now I have the pro account, Go Canva. And I found a place to record audio and scheduled my first guest. And it was a lot of small tasks. But I encourage you to break down any big goal into a series of small tasks. And I have to remind myself this all the time, but it really does make a difference. Every short film, play, podcast, pilot, feature film, web series, all they are is just a series of completed small tasks. And once you do one, you'll go to the next one, you'll go to the next one. And you might think to yourself, okay, well, if I write this short film, where will it go? How will I even put this up? Don't worry about that. Just do the couple small tasks in front of you. Just start with the small tasks and eventually those small tasks later might be you'll ask other people you'll figure it out you'll get the resources so i chose the name mentors on the mic for the alliteration really because i post on mondays and my name is michelle miller just m's all around but also because i just finished this book called tribe of mentors by tim ferris which is currently in front of me as i record this anyway that one episode turned into a hundred episodes a hundred freaking episodes and it was a lot of work guys i mean it was it's i'm on my fourth season now I wouldn't even say I'm halfway, probably a little less than halfway for, through this season. I usually do about 20 per episode, per season. Um, and I took, it depends, some some hiatuses are longer than others. But um, thank you for listening to these episodes. I really love them all so much. I love the stories I hear from you guys about how they made a difference. I once connected with someone on LinkedIn who told me that they reached out to one of my mentors after listening to the episode and that guy is now his mentor. Not only that, he, this guy's opened doors for him, helped him get his own, like, like helped get him meetings to maybe pitch for his own show. I've had writers reach out to huge mentors on the podcast that read their work and give feedback, which is huge, right? We all know that that's something that's really difficult for people just to even read your work. Um, and some have helped connect people to literary agents. 
And an actor I know recorded a question for a casting director, which I played during the interview. And a couple of days later, that casting director sent her an audition. So, and also, yeah, you know, even like during the Atomic Habit series, which I did only a couple months ago, I met a few of you in our integration calls and you asked to start an accountability group. And I love seeing and hearing about your goals and your updates. Please keep sending them. I, I'm one of those people, I really am just genuinely happy for other people and want all of you to succeed. I want all of your dreams to come true. And if my podcast or connecting you to someone, if I'm able to, helps you achieve your dreams, that would be amazing. So lastly, I'm going to remind myself and you to celebrate the wins. This is a win. Me getting to 100 episodes. I used to ask every mentor, what is your definition of success? And each answer was different, but it expanded my definition. Ask yourself, what is your definition of success right now? What is your definition of success right now? Because it will most likely change when you have that success. But you know what won't? Our habits. If we are upset about our lack of success now, we will be upset about what we lack even when we've achieved that success we are hoping for. More money, more problems, right? Celebrating the wins helps us be grateful for where we are. Because ideally, we'd want to be happy in the future when we get whatever it is we're hoping for now. But if we're not happy now with what we have, we're not going to be happy then. Celebrating the wins helps us be grateful for where we are. I'm an actress. I'm a podcast host with 100 episodes under her belt. I moderate panels. I'm a storyteller. I'm a children's book author, although I'm still working to publish. And I am celebrating where I am right now. I am using this moment, this win, to celebrate and not just push forward to the next thing. Because if I don't, that will forever be my habit. It'll never be enough. And hopefully this win can remind you to celebrate yours. Wherever you are in your journey in this industry, whatever task you are on, you did it. Don't downplay that student film you booked or that agent you have or that co-star role you just booked that's only a couple lines on a show or that guest star that you finally booked or that book you just published or that festival you just got into. Be proud of it. Don't bring it down. Don't say it's just this. I used to say, oh, it's only a co-star. Be proud of it. Find some small way to celebrate yourself as I intend to do today. I'm not sure what yet, but I'll share it on Instagram. And now let's dive into our incredible mentor. Because what better way to celebrate 100 episodes than with a mentor, right? Sharia Nanavati is a producer and vice president of content analysis and Lionsgate's motion picture group. He manages the greenlighting process and provides guidance to drive content distribution and strategy decisions. We break down how he started as a CPA in Texas. How cool is that, right? He also worked as a musician and managed a music publishing company before moving into this, right? And we also touched on his role at Lionsgate, what actually that means to be a vice president of content analysis, and what sets Lionsgate apart from others. And without further ado, here's Sharia Nanavati. Welcome, welcome to Mentors on the Mic podcast. Thanks for being here. Of course. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm happy to be here. 
Thank you. you. I appreciate that. I would be very sad if you were like a little ambivalent about being here. Right. So right. I oh, appreciate I the happiness. Make, I could do without, you know. Exactly. I'm like, I yeah. could have just used this hour back in my life. Um, I'm good. Everything is good on my end. Thank you for asking. I'm very excited to talk to you about your career because I love when people come at the entertainment industry from different angles and you have a very particular like start that I love talking about. So I'm going to start off with what is your first role because, you know, I'm a man of, I'm a woman of like, of uh, tradition, if you will. But I wanted also to ha- make sure you include like where you came from before that first role. So what was your first role in the entertainment industry? So my first role in the entertainment industry was almost a little over 10 years ago. I started my own music publishing company in Austin, Texas, and I started writing music and playing music and recording and stuff like that. And really what I did was help local artists uh, try to figure out, license out their songs to build a library, which I would then license out for sync licensing, video games, TV shows, that kind of thing, right? Because when I started out in music, I realized that for any new act, there's really only two uh, steady flows of income you can have, which are live touring or sync licensing. And any new act doesn't really have the fan base to be constantly touring to actually keep their lights on. And so I was like, sync licensing seems to be where it's at. So maybe I should try to do that for myself and help other local artists kind of make their name doing that as well. Well, first of all, fantastic. Um, Before I ask you questions about this particular role, I think it's important to note that, like, what did you do prior to this? Right. So um, I may not have a traditional background in what people normally have when coming to entertainment. I'm actually a CPA, I'm an accountant. You know, that was a long winding road to getting there. Basically, I never really wanted to work growing up. Like as a kid, I always wanted to act or produce and direct and make music and stuff. My parents were very much of the idea that get something to fall back on. You know, you can always try to do that stuff once you've made your money and you have an essay, but don't, don't, Put it all in one basket right don't don't yeah. risk it all without having something to fall back on and so i was like all right fair enough and i went to the university of texas at austin for my undergrad and they at the time i think they still are one of the best uh accounting programs in the country and i thought to myself i was like if i don't want to really do anything i may as well do the best thing that they have to offer and so they had this program uh taking a slight step back i actually went in as an engineer mechanical engineering my freshman wow. year and so I considered switching over and getting a double degree in math and physics because I love both. But I didn't, didn't want to do academia. So I was like, no, I don't want to do that. So then I switched into finance. I was like, you know, that's fine. People need business people to work. Uh, and then my accounting professor in that second year, my intro to accounting, said that I did really well in the class. And he was like, yo, we have this class, this program, where you apply in your second year, sophomore year of college, and it ends up being a five-year program total. Uh, but starting your junior year, they queue you up to get your undergrad degree, your master's degree, and your CPA license kind of all rolled into one. Mm. And it was one of the best programs in the country for that. And I was like, you know what? If I'm going to do something I don't want to do, may as well do the best thing they have to offer. So I applied, got in, the rest is kind of history. And then for a few years after college, I worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC, doing international tax planning, M&A due diligence. Got a whole set of skills that kind of translate to what I do now, but really set me up to like understand how corporate works, how the stock markets work and how, what, what people look for in doing business, right? Overall as a giant, uh, on a, on a commercial level. But then a couple of years in, I realized that I needed to get back to music and what I really want to do. So I quit 
And I moved back to Austin. I started my music publishing company and I started doing that for a few years. But yeah, and then I realized very soon after that that music was too close to me. I was I loved it too much. I couldn't really uh the music that I was writing wasn't commercial enough to afford my own lifestyle and to keep the lights on. So I was like, eh, I should probably not work in music, you know, for a living. I keep it as a hobby, which now I do. I have a bunch of guitars and stuff I still write. But then I needed to work in film and TV because I want to stay in entertainment. And that's what brought me out to LA to get my second graduate degree in and make that transition. First of all, all is super interesting. I love that you started off as a CPA. So then at some point after that, you that's when you got your MBA, right? And you got it at UCLA, Anderson School of Management. Right. So did right. you know going in what you wanted to do or what you wanted to get out of that exactly? Yeah, I did. I actually didn't even want to go to business school because I already had two business degrees. I was already a CPA. Didn't really need the knowledge that I was going to get, but I didn't need the instruction that I was going to get taught, right, at business school. So the other option was law school. Now, why I wanted to do that is... Uh, this is kind of funny. I'm going to say something. I'd like to trademark it if I can, or however you want to do it. Um, I guess when I say it here, it's mine now. But I had this motto and this slogan when I was in Austin doing the music thing that when I left, I was either going to be Vinny or Ari or Bust from Entourage. Not the best show to reference. Right? It doesn't I think it's hold a great up. show. I think it's that's great. fair. Uh, it doesn't necessarily hold up by today's standards, but Basically, what I was saying was, I want to be the star, or I want to be the man behind the star, or I'm just going to call it off, right? I had that in my head, and I knew that to be a star, like, I was probably too late to the game. I was too old at this point. It's too old, you know, you're too old to be a rock star at some point. And so, how do I become an agent? How do I become a manager? How do I do that kind of stuff? And I, I started researching the people that I looked to as, you know, examples and role models in the, in the industry. And a lot of them were lawyers. A lot of them did entertainment law, did all this kind of stuff. And as a CPA, I used to uh, specialize in tax. And so I already had a hand in law. I did dealt with a lot of contracts and legalities, even doing the music yeah. publishing. And so I said, I could go to law school. It's, you know, already there. I'm already there the way there. I can just knock it out and then I can, you know, do the entertainment law thing. But what happened when I went back and I was applying in 2014, the market, there was a bit of a glut. A lot of people were going to law school at the time. And so mm. it was very tough to get into the, the schools that I would have wanted to go to. And I realized that by the time I graduated in 2018, uh, it'd be a market flooded with new lawyers who needed the job. And I'd already cut my teeth at a public accounting company. I didn't really want to join a firm and do that whole thing again before getting back into industry. Right. And so then I decided to do business school instead, which was an easier, uh, it had lower barriers of entry, I would say, to the industry. And I really only applied to three schools NYU, UCLA, and USC, got into UCLA, the rest is history, because I knew I wanted to get into entertainment. I wanted to get into film and TV, and really those are the two cities you do it in in America. And UCLA just had a really good network. And so what I went in wanting to achieve was to build out a network of people in Hollywood, in film and TV, that I could then leverage to get where I am, I guess, now, and where I want to be in the future. Uh, which is something I just didn't have. And I never was able to develop that in Texas. You know, just that kind of network didn't exist there. So really you were going in not for the classes, but really just for the networking and being able to put yeah. yourself in the right place and yeah. meet the yeah. right people. hundred percent. And the, um, the cool thing about doing it, you see, I'm sure all the other grad schools do too, is that they allow you to take classes in the other programs, the other schools that they have. Right. So I wasn't just taking business classes. I actually took a bunch of classes in the film school at UCLA met a lot of people there too who are now actively directing acting and writing stuff right what 
jobs were you gunning for? You mentioned before that a lot of the people that you were looking up to all had law degrees. And then later, yeah. So what jobs were you kind of hoping to get at one point? That's a very good question. I actually didn't know. I didn't know, right? Um, A few years before I applied and did the whole thing, I read this book, I forget the exact name, but it basically went down the list of all the coolest jobs that you hear of and like how you can get them. So you're talking like A&R executives or like a writer, producer, stuff like that, right? I didn't really know what kind of job I wanted. All I knew is that at some point in my life, I wanted to do X, Y, and Z things. Like I wanted to make a movie. I wanted to work at a studio. I wanted to run a network, you know, that kind of stuff. Like I just had these goals in my head, no idea how to go about doing it. What helped me figure that out is through school, through UCLA, they had this club that you're in the entertainment management club that allows you to go to different studios and different companies and do this day, days on the job thing where you huh. go in, they take a bunch of students and they walk them through the, the campus or the building or whatever. And they kind of talk through what roles they could fill once they graduate, Amazing. right? That's fantastic. And most of them were not really my forte. A lot of them had to do with talking about distribution, digital distribution. They, this is pre, like, pre the big streaming boom. So there's a lot of like analyzing well, let me put it, let me take a step back. Streaming was a thing. It just wasn't as big as it is now, right? But it was a lot of like, what's the right price for selling stuff or renting stuff on iTunes and Amazon, that kind of stuff. That's not really what I wanted to do because I wanted to like create, right? I wanted to help stuff. Uh, I will say one of the main underlying drivers, I'll save that for a later question because I'm sure it'll come up. Uh, but what I wanted to do was produce, right? I wanted to like make friends and help them make stuff. But I knew that if I started a studio doing distribution or something, I may not be able to translate that into the role that I would need to help make the creative decisions or to help make the green light decisions, right? What happened, what cool thing happens is one of those days on the job is we went to CAA, the talent agency, which is also very cool. Cause like at that point I still wanted to be an agent. I still want to do that whole thing. Right. You want and to I knew that being an agent, yeah. Being an agent would be like a foot in the door to get to where I wanted to be in the industry. That's, that's how I was thinking, right? Veniari, exactly. We went to CAA and they had a panel of three people, three different groups. One of them was, uh, you know, just their private equity, like investment type of stuff they were doing. One of them was more marketing strategy and things of that nature. Not also my forte. I'm just not into that necessarily as much as I should be probably. Uh, I wasn't back then anyway. And the third one was this job in business affairs that lawyers, they help negotiate deals and all that stuff. Kind of up my alley, like I love legalese and contracts, but it wasn't a lawyer on the panel. It was someone who, like me, had a business degree, right? And what he said in the room was that they have people that graduate with MBAs and business degrees and stuff basically analyze the put together film model where depending on the different windows of release, you have theatrical, home end, TV and all that stuff. You kind of map out what revenues you project to make and then you figure out based you know you do the formulas and the calculations to figure out what back end or what profit share their talent their clients would be making at different box office levels right uh and this is also again pre that while box office was still thing all the movies had box office and all that stuff right and i was like that i didn't even know they had that job like i didn't know they hired people to do that i thought people were just like winging it you know theoretical negotiations of deals and stuff like that and I love making deals. Like you can talk to anyone in my family. Like I've been making terrible deals for them, great deals for me ever since I was a kid. <laughs> um, and I didn't know that they hired people for that. So I actually reached out to this guy 
Um, shockingly, ended up, he actually went to Texas for his undergrad as well and Anderson for his MBA. And he's a few years older than me. So I reached out to him. I was like, dude, you're basically me, but three years ahead. That's amazing. Let's grab a coffee. You know what I mean? And so we grabbed coffee. We kind of hit it off. And at the end of it, he basically was like, we're looking for an intern this summer. Why don't you nice. send me your resume and we'll see what happens. And so I did. And like three months, they flash forward three months, like they offered me the internship role. I took it. And that's basically how I got the job that I'm at now. Cause like during that internship, I loved every minute of it. I even kind of miss wearing can a Can I suit ask you day. how old you yeah. were during that internship? I was that year, it was 2016, I was 30. See, I think I just, I, I hope you don't mind. And the reason why I ask is cause yeah. I, I love focusing on the different ages that people can kind of pivot and do different things. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I think yeah, people forget that they can also do internships at like in their thirties and still yeah. try new things. And they're coming with that wealth of experience. It's not like you're not, right. you're coming in as a 22 year old or not. You're coming in as a 30 year old doing an internship, very different, right. you know, but um, I do want people to know that, that that's. Yeah. I will say if I can add to that, I will say that age should never be, or at least to the best of your ability, do not use that to discourage yourself from doing anything because one of my favorite quotes of all time, I don't know who said it, it's been misattributed throughout history, is that, and I heard it from Noel Gallagher, who's like my idol, uh, one of my heroes. It's, you're never too old to be what you might've been. Oh. It's just not a thing, right? And so I always hold that in the back of my head. Anytime I say that I'm too old to do something, I know I just literally said I was too old to be a rock star, like five minutes ago. You did, that was yeah, that was, that was you, yeah, that was you. That's that more was, of a joke. You said the same thing, yeah, no, but I get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, right, right. No, but that, you're right, that's amazing. And I do think that's a really important point to point out. And, you know, there's it's never too late to, to pivot, to go back to school, to do a new internship. And, and it doesn't mean that you're starting from scratch. I think people forget right. that. They feel like, oh, I'm, right. I'm, work, I'm, I'm sort of interning with people that are uh, right out of college. And that's not yeah. always true, and that's not always the case. Yeah, yeah. So and you did you have, are. yeah. And even if you even are, if, who cares? You're learning things. They're learning things from you. You're learning things from them. Exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. you were an intern for how long? At the You were specifically at CAA for most of the The summer intern, like years. three months, Perfect. two and a half months, yeah. or whatever. And then from and there. Then, and then the end of it, honestly, again, it was is all the how I landed the role that I have now at Lionsgate is I just, that was my first year at, at grad school at UCLA. And one of my classmates set up like a brunch for all of us to get to know each other that summer. And I was seated next to this girl, Erica, who I love, fantastic. She had just started working at Lionsgate a few months prior, and I was still doing this internship. And she described what she was doing, and I described what I was doing. And like five days later, as luck has it, she hit me up and she goes, hey, the guys at Lionsgate who do what you do, just quit. You want me to put in your resume for this job? I was like, a thousand percent, yes, let's do this. See, you know what I mean? another benefit of going to school is just stuff like that. Yeah, the network, I mean, honestly, you just have to, it's a lot of effort to learn what you know, but it takes an equal amount of effort to try to put yourself in the situation, the places that you need to be. You know what I mean? Yeah, I completely get that. Yeah. So then your first the role, then your first role at Lionsgate, what were you doing then? Uh, basically, I started, I came in as, you know, like a, a manager, analyst level person in the the team that I now manage, which is deal analysis. It was called deal analysis back then. Uh, and what we used to do is basically be the counterparties to the team that I intern at, at CAA. So while they were modeling things out for their clients, we would be modeling things out from the studio's point of view. 
saying that, okay, this is our film. These are the revenues you are expecting to hit at these different performance levels, right? Like we weren't in the business of predicting box office performance, but what we were trying to do is say that if the film did a hundred in the box office, this is what the net profit would be to the studio. And because talent participations and profit sharing has an impact on that, we help business affairs and creative, you know, kind of give them guidance on what kind of, what deal points to negotiate over and stuff like that. And so I was basically the counterparty at the studio. And that was very helpful. So I did, so that's what I started out doing. It was mostly dealing with white theatrical releases at the time. And then over the last, I, I've been at Lionsgate now a little over six, almost six and a half years. And over that time, the team has now grown. I now manage the whole thing small content analysis. And we do it for the entirety of the motion picture. So not just white theatrical, we're doing it for all types of releases, individual films, slates of films, trying to map stuff out and figure out what the right move is, what the right slate strategy should be. Anything to do with film IP. So if you're licensing stuff out for a stage show or location-based entertainment, video games, that kind of stuff. So for the slate of films, for instance, how far out are you usually working on? So for example, like right now, are you working on next year's stuff, end of the year stuff, six months from now, two years from now? What do you, What's the timeline look like? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, from a financial point of view, because we work very closely with our financial planning team that reports over the corporate financial and stuff like that, they typically look at things on a rolling three-year basis. But the movies that we work or we help uh, model out and we help negotiate deals over, those are very long lead, right? They could be at the right stage. They could be in development. They could right. be. It could be like we just. I actually just worked on a movie. We're not allowed to talk about. That's going to come out within a month, right? Oh, but we great. literally just like worked on it. So it really depends on the whole. It's a spectrum. Like we'll right. be negotiating okay. deals at the film festivals and stuff like that too, right? Yeah, of course. So, yeah. so oh, I have so many questions. So where do I start? Okay, thinking about um, what are some recommendations you make in your position? So, like, let's say you do, you you analyze all the content, you figure out what are some recommendations you then go for anything, uh, whether it's three years ahead or one month ahead? Yeah, since the focus is a lot on my team is the economic point of view, the stuff that we typically advise on is how well does the current budget that is built for this script make sense as far as where we think this movie is going to live when it comes mm. out, right? As far as the record. Yes. So like what for kind sure. of cast, like we help the creative team, marketing team and all this stuff kind of think through what kind of cast do they need to hit the numbers that they need, they want to yeah. achieve to make sure that we can support a budget like this. Or, you know, and then when, you come, when it comes to talent deal negotiations, it's like, how much can we afford to pay them up front versus in the back end to make it not only fair and equitable to them and worth their time, but also ensure that we are in a position where we can greenlight the film at a certain level where we can still satisfy our uh, corporate shareholders and stuff by making the right greenlight investment decisions, right? That's the kind of stuff we advise on. That's so interesting. Well, especially yeah. because movies, for the most part, except for key places like Lionsgate yep. don't usually make a profit, right? right? If you think about people investing in movies consistently yep. across the board, they're not getting their money back. They're doing it right. for other reasons, right? They right. want the prestige that comes with it. They want to be in the business, and and but they're not getting their money back. It's not really supposed to be an economical right. decision, except right. for places like Lionsgate. I think that there is an expectation of return. Right. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, good. No, that was it. I just wanted to know what, what that looks like and if you're able to kind of, and you might not be able to, but if you're yeah. able to give us an idea of like 
what is an expected return look like? I mean, it, it, I'm sure it varies and I'm sure it's like yeah. there's a lot of factors involved, but Absolutely. I was just curious as to how much you can touch on that because there's not many well, places out there that are like you. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it depends on, like you said, depending on where you are, you have a different POV on what your quote unquote return on investment is. Right. Right. A lot of people make movies for reasons all their own. Right. They either do it for a profit or they do it because they want to make something that's really close to them. Yeah. Or they want to work with certain people. Or they want an Oscar. Or they want an Oscar. Easier said than done. Right. Of Uh, course. But no, uh, you know, people do it for their own reasons. And depending where you are, if you're at a studio that is publicly traded, you typically want to make what in all probability will be a profitable decision or a profitable investment, right? Right. Again, no one can predict how a movie's going to land when you make it and put it out. Absolutely. There's no way to do it. And the best way to do that is to actually make the movie and then try to pitch to the buyers who will pay you for you know what it's worth. But you're not going to know that until you made the movie, or at least right. had some kind of stuff you've done. And so at places like Lionsgate, other studios, like we have our own internal benchmark metrics that we look at and say that at where we hope and expect this film to perform, right? Be it box office or be it like flipping it to a streamer or whatever. Yeah. Does it meet those metrics? Like I'm talking margin, I'm talking return on investment, I'm talking, you know, that kind of stuff. The NPV, yeah. like, where does that make sense? A lot of financial stuff, but that's not the only thing that goes into the decision, right? Because we have IP that we know may not be the smartest financial decision, but it could help us if we come in at the right stage and we own the rights and stuff like that. It could help us create a franchise, not only for film, but for TV shows and video games and all that stuff, right? So there's a lot of stuff that goes into the decision. That you don't necessarily put on a page. Interesting. And then huh. if you're at a production so, company, then no, good. Oh no, I was just thinking, so I didn't think about it like that. So like, there are certain projects. Let me think about this aloud. There are certain projects that you think to yourself, well, this could be a really, this could expand into video games very easily. This can expand into yeah. merchandise very easily. Is yeah. that is that sort of what you're saying? That like, oh, we're not sure if this yeah. will return on investment in this regard, but we can expand it very easily to all of this. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, you can look to Disney as an example, right? I yeah, think, I uh, thinking, yeah, they've done a fantastic job over the last few decades of mining not only their own IP but also picking up companies that have IP that they knew they could then not only make movies about on that IP, but they could take it out, and make TV shows, put it out at the parks. I mean, yep. huge. It's ubiquitous, right? And yeah. that one investment to get the rights or to make the movie pales in comparison to what the potential profitability, right? It's just interesting. You have to take a holistic view on the IP and the rights if, to make a proper decision. Like that, I'm a firm believer in that. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of one-off films that probably won't be a franchise or whatever. But then yeah. that's when you want to make the best deal that you have and ensure that you have some kind of easier path to profitability. So. Let's break that down for a bit because I'm just starting to learn about all this stuff. So I'm obviously very fascinated. So I had the CEO of Samuel Goldwyn Films on and he was talking all about the distribution and about like, you know, a lot of what he used to be on top of when he was at Sony and then now at, you know, Samuel Goldwyn was a lot to do with like, let's say he picks up a film 
you know, what the um, distribution would be like. So can yeah. you explain that a little bit on your end in terms of, like, if you're looking at a movie and you're thinking to yourself, well, we want to make sure the opening weekend is great if it's at the box office. But we also yeah. want to make sure that internationally it's being, you know, yeah. it's profitable. And also we want to make sure that, I mean, DVD sales are not really a thing anymore. But what other categories are there that I'm just unaware of? Yeah, so, I mean... You hit on a, the, some of the key ones, and also I'm kind of sad that you said DVD sales aren't a thing anymore. Yeah. I literally, on the other side of this wall, I have a wall full of music CDs and DVDs. I still collect physical media. I'm one of the last dying breed, I'm sure. But you have a theatrical release. Typically, I'm talking about the standard traditional release window, and you have the theatrical release. You know, a month and a half, two months later, you'd have the home end release, which is your package media, DVDs, digital. Now you can buy stuff or rent stuff on Amazon, iTunes, that right. kind of stuff, Apple. And then after that, you go into the window, it's called pay TV, right? Pay one window. This is where you have partners like HBO, Showtime, Epix. Like they would then take the film that was theatrical mm. in this window soon after home entertainment release. They have exclusive rights to screen that film on their distribution channel, right? And so that is a pay window there. Then after that, there's a bit of a, it can either go away, right? For a long time, you wouldn't see a movie anywhere. You wouldn't be able to find it unless you went to a blockbuster or you rented it somewhere or something like that. I'm talking my data myself. There. I know. But you, no, you I, love my... block, I love blockbuster, yeah. Right. But I think you understand what I'm saying is that you wouldn't be able to find the, t the film anywhere unless you actively sought it out and bought it or rented it somewhere, right? And then it would come back on TV on the network channels like TBS. Not not network, network, but like the cable, the yeah, cable, yeah. right? Yeah. TBS, TNT, that kind of stuff. So that's called the free TV window where you have open licenses, you may have a couple of locked in deals or contracts that they would have to take your films, or you just like negotiate the deals that you get for X periods of time, right? Little windows. Usually on a case by case basis, right? Yeah, exactly. And then you have another pay window where you can again, partner up with a pay partner. And then that's basically the first cycle of the film. That's like, you're talking the first seven to 10 years of the film, right? After initial release right. theatrically. What's happening now, um, and COVID and pandemic and all that stuff kind of really sped up and catalyzed this thing where you're seeing a shrinking of those windows. You're seeing a lot of yeah. those windows kind of disappear for certain types of films. You're seeing where a lot films of overlap will now go... with those windows. Some right? overlap is there, yes. Um, but, you know, it's stuff like PIVA, premium VOD, where you have like a shorter theatrical window, call it like two to three weeks. And then yeah. it goes to this premium window where you can rent it for more than you would be able to rent it for like a month or two later, right? Right. Uh, it's all just a way of kind of trying to find the audience in the market where they are as opposed to drawing them to you. Because right. what we've learned over time, and this kind of happened with music too, also one of the reasons why I left music to come to film and TV, uh, is that the, in my opinion, the consumer kind of dictated the rise and the fall of the record label, right? And stuff like that, where they just wouldn't be willing to pay for albums anymore because they could stream stuff on all the very on Spotify on iTunes, right? They could just use Napster or whatever. Um, similarly, I use, I use that. I use Kazaa. Kazaa, I used to, yeah. Uh, I remember that. <laughs> right. That, you know, kind of is happening now, in my opinion, where the consumer just doesn't go where they used to go. Like, used to be you go to the theaters because it was something to do. But now you have so many other options of what to do on a Friday night that you're competing with a lot of things when it comes to capturing someone's attention. And so you want to meet them where they are because you may not always be able to convince them to come where you are. And that's what's led to a lot of the shortening of the windows and trying to capitalize on things. And so now you see films that go directly to TV or to a streaming partner like Netflix right. or Apple, right? 
HBO Max, or it goes straight to DVD, it's straight to home video, which is you'll find it only on Amazon where you can rent or buy it, stuff like that. You can have a day and date release where it'll be on a handful of theaters and at the same time be available at home on whatever platform you choose. And so you have a bunch of these mashups, these things that are happening. And I think the one cool thing I found working at Lionsgate is that any you can find a market for most things. Like there, there's a buyer for pretty much anything. You just have to find it, right? And I think working with some of the production companies that we do, I found that to be true. Like it's just you can make stuff and people will be there. It's kind of like if you build it, they will come. You know what I mean? I think that's that you can always find that's a market. A like if you're trying to do a particular thing, then maybe you have to go somewhere. But if you just want to make what you truly want to make, I think you will still be able to find something that makes sense so then are you more like focused on the development aspect of of creating films then or is there also acquiring of films like if you're going to festivals and going okay that film's already done they need a place to live they need a place to help manage distribution and you're competing with all those other places to be like come to lionsgate yeah no that's a it's a great question so we have teams we have an in-house production team and a creative team that do the in-house development they get the rights and develop the script and do all kinds of stuff right we also have an acquisitions team and they're the ones that go to the festivals and scout out stuff and they're the ones talking to production companies that are outside of lionsgate who want to either make a movie but they're looking for financing independent financing or they've already made a movie and they're looking for distribution and so i my team kind of look at films across the whole spectrum of films, whether it's at the right stage or the option stage, all the way down to a completed film looking for distribution. And each one comes with their own different nuances on what rights are available, how best to exploit, all that kind of stuff, right? But yeah, we at Lionsgate, we kind of do all of it. So let's say, you know, a com- uh, like, a, like a film is being produced by you guys, so it's in-house, and yeah. they are approved for a certain budget based on your analysis, and then mm-hmm. they come back. Let's say Mm -hmm. they're already in the middle of production or whatever. And they're like, listen, we need more money. Yep. How much are you involved in making those type of decisions or helping the team that does handle budget make those decisions? Right. I'm not as involved in greenlighting like any budget overages and stuff like that. I am more involved in the uh, way that if they are considering a reshoot plan or they're considering different options that would affect the budget differently. Then at that point, we can help put a POV on which overage on the budget makes more sense economically. Mm. But then obviously that key decision is going to live with uh, the, the chairman of the film group and the creative right. team, right? They like they want to make the movie they need to make. At the end They're of the day, They're still working off of your numbers, probably. They're working off of your analysis going, listen, we don't think, you, I mean, essentially you guys don't think that this money is going to make more than a certain number, so it's not right to increase the budget from your perspective. So I feel like you guys right. are should be included in it, if not. Oh, we're definitely included in it. Yeah. Don't get me okay, wrong, we're included in it. But what I what I would say is, it's very much, uh, you have to make a decision from two angles, right? You have the vision and the creative that you want to achieve, and then you have the numbers, right? And on our page, basically, we have multiple scenarios from left to right, low case performance, high case performance, right? Mm. And what it is, is we put together an economic POV saying that at each of these levels is what we hope to make. What is crucial to any green light decision or any budget over decision in my mind is the marriage of the two where like, we're telling you what we project the facts could be, 
but it's up to the creative vision to convince the powers that be that make decisions that yeah. that drives the value to the right side of the page. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, I do. I do. So then obviously, okay, so you're not part of the team that like goes to festivals, for instance, and like fights for certain for certain films, but your analysis is is part of those decisions, right? So can yeah. you give us any we idea? We were very closely of, with them. Yeah. So so can yeah. you tell me a little bit about that partnership and what exactly how do you yeah. how you're part of that and, and your collaboration sure. with them? Yeah, so in the lead up to any festival like Sundance, for example, like our acquisitions team kind of knows what films are going to be premiered and showcased there. And before that, like a week or two before that, we'll get together and they'll present to us. These are the films that we think of all the ones that are showing show some promise. And so my team will then go about putting together a model or an you know, economic POV on all those, arm them with something that they can go take with them to you know the town and get it done. And then while they're there, they might watch something new or start negotiating one of those deals. And I'm on call. My team's on call. They'll call us up middle of the night after the midnight premiere or something and be like, all right, new model. Here's the, the premise of the film. Here's what it's about. Here's the cast. Do it real quick. So we'll put together, like we'll cobble up our comps and stuff, put together a model, and then we'll help them kind of in real time negotiate those deals, right? That's so um, and I don't want to say that we're not involved in going to festivals because we have in the past gone. It's just that now COVID and all that stuff has kind of limited what we're able to do. Right. But we are very, yeah, that, that's basically the role that we would play at the festivals now is that Huge. we help arm them with the tools they need to negotiate the best deal. And just out of curiosity, and, and I don't know if this is something you feel comfortable answering, but would you like what do you think would make i mean obviously there's so many great companies out there lionsgate definitely being one of them why would some film why would they why should they choose you guys as as the the company that yeah works with them does that make sense great question um i think it comes down to a what stage the film is in i'm assuming you're talking about something that's already been made or about to be independently financed right right so the reasons why you would pick your distribution partner the way you would, in my opinion, comes down to how well it's going to be distributed, how well it's going to be marketed, and what controls you have over that, right? Now, certain companies are known to be the best at marketing a product that they believe in, and it's premise, you know, it's like a, it's part of their brand. Certain companies are more like, once we buy this, we're going to do what we want with it, and that's the deal you get, right? I would say at Lionsgate, we are very talent friendly. We're very creator friendly. And we aim to be the best place for storytellers and creators when it comes to building out their vision and making sure that what they want is realized within the parameters of it being a smart financial decision, right? Um, We are also one of the few players that would pick up stuff and still put it out theatrically if that's what's right for the film, right? So it really depends on, like, a lot of people make a movie, they don't care if it comes out theatrically, they'll go to the highest bidder, even if it means it goes straight to DVD or whatever, right? right? Or, I mean, straight to home or straight to TV. Uh, some people want to see their films theatrically, in which case right. they're limiting their potential buyer pool, which is not a problem. That's what they want to do. That's what you got to do. Uh, we just happen to be able to operate on all those angles and all those fronts. And so we, we provide a, a holistic... Mm. Uh, we provide a whole host of opportunities and avenues for a film to be released. 
And we have a really good marketing team, I would say. I, I love our marketing team. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, so what are some projects that you've been involved in or or any like fun memories that are yeah. you know, that you can share with us? Uh, yeah. One of the first movies I worked on the model for and the Green Up package for ever since I first started Lionsgate was The Spy Who Dumped Me. And that was one like I built the model myself when the idea came in, which is the script, and all the way through to release and stuff. And that was really fun. I got to go to the premiere and the party afterwards. It was really cool. I really enjoyed that. That's really cool. Uh, and also, like, I love, I actually do really like that movie. I think it's really fun. Mila Kunis is fantastic. Kate McKinnon. Is, Amazing you know, people. Singular talent, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, another fun one that I was really proud that we were able to get and make and put out there was Knives Out. It's one of my mm. favorite movies. Like, I think that script is fantastic. Ryan Johnson, Ron Bergman. Like, uh, honestly, I don't the think there's a single now? line. The first one. The first very one. First one. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's a whole story that I'm not going to get into about the second one. Uh, maybe we'll but, do it uh, off. Yes, we can do that off the record. But uh, that first one, that script, honestly, I don't think there was a single wasted line of dialogue or anything on the screen. Like, everything was really, well, like, one of the best scripts I've ever read. Do you want to keep doing this? Is there um, an ele- element of interest in some other part of the industry? Is this something you want to keep doing? What's What are your thoughts yeah. in terms of, like, your growth? I love what I do. I want to keep doing it for as long as they let me. I'm I'm a big fan of being in a position at a company where you get to see stuff truly come to life from inception or conception to release. And I would hope that I can continue building on my skill set and moving up the chain at Lionsgate. On a personal note, like over the course of my life, there are a few things that I still want to do. Make what? Well, I still want to make a music video. I still want to like write stuff I'm, I'm working on a full-length album right now in my free time which Amazing. is not really existent but i put out an ep of five songs about almost 10 years ago nine years ago and i'm working on a full-length album so it's now. coming but, yeah that's cool so wait it. for a music video are you purpose I, I just want to clarify you want to make a music video for yourself like you want to be in a music video as well uh i don't necessarily need to be in it Cre- oh, okay uh, but I, I like to i think so of your music i get yeah not necessarily my music either like i just think I have a bunch of ideas for music videos. Like the first thing Got that comes it. to mind when I hear a new song is the video for the song. Like that's that's how I like when I'm listening to something new, like works. I'm always thinking about the thing. Right. Got or it. like it goes so great in this scene in a movie, right? Like music supervisor right. roles. Um and I always jokingly say half jokingly that when I retire, like I'll probably just end up making music videos because I think that's the outside of stand up, which I think is the truest art form, where it's literally just you, an audience, and your mic. I think that's the purest form of art in a lot of ways, or storytelling. Music videos are the perfect confluence of everything that I love. It's music, it's video, uh, film and TV, and it's like storyboarding and everything. It's like it's telling a whole story. And so I think it's like the perfect combination of everything. So I I mean, there are these things that I'd like to do over the course of my life. Hopefully I have enough time to do it. You will. I don't know. 100%. You will make it, you will make it happen for sure. I'm sure. Okay, great. Oh, I guess I wanted to ask you one more question about managing like the green lighting process specifically. So like, yeah. how do you what 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 goes into giving guidance and like managing the green lighting process for a particular yeah. film to develop? Typically, like I said, the decision lies with the ultimate decision is going to be with the chairman and the CEO, right? And stuff, right? The people that sign off on the package. 
But what my the role that I play, my team plays, is we put together this package which has, you know, a brief synopsis of what kind of movie it is, the cast, the logline, all that stuff, and why we want to buy it, why we want to make it. Then you have the signature sheet, which has your like our expectations for low base, high performance, and what that means for the company and all that stuff. People sign off on it. That's one aspect of it. But before it even gets to that stage, like the film, depending on whether it's an acquisition or it's an in-house production, goes through various stages, right? Uh, acquisitions is basically comes down to like how good is the movie, or the, do we trust the producer to make this movie, and we pick it up as a negative produce, a pickup or something. And then is the deal good enough for us to be happy with the deal, the agreement, the movie to buy it, and make the agreement? On the in-house production, it's a little more involved, where you're actively developing something, and you you have multiple rounds of like, okay, what about this cast, this script, and we change stuff around this budget, all that stuff. But then anything could change, right? Like a cast could drop off for whatever reason, or a director may move off the project, right. get a new one in changes the vision and so that's a little bit of a more um i would say that's a longer process but that's a more thorough process in evaluating the decision to greenlight a movie right because you've, you've gone through a bunch of iterations of seeing what impact x y and z things have to the model right um and so i may have forgotten your question but what part of managing the green light the green light process yeah. just right and so what we've moved to now is we've implemented this process where early in the game of development, the content team will come to us with their prospectus, their vision on a film. And then from there, I and my team help steward this whole process and steer it to where marketing and theatrical distribution will give their input on the film. And then the sales teams will tell us what they think about it. And we kind of pull all that stuff together and we navigate the film itself from that idea that content had with what their cast options are and for that all the way through to where this is the package given all the input that we have that we think is a green lightable film at this budget with this cast with this these expectations all that stuff and then it ultimately comes down to those people in the room who will sign off on it yeah the idea is to get get the best thinking in the room and we're all aligned on the same vision for the film, right because what you don't want to have happen is Creative has one vision for a movie in mind that is not properly conveyed, and so marketing doesn't know what they're selling, and then sales doesn't really know what they're buying. You know what I mean? That happens, though. I feel like that Absolutely. happens not at Lionsgate, obviously, but at other <laughs> places. I feel like sometimes you're seeing the trailer and you're like, "Huh, that yep. feels different than the movie that I just saw." Yep. You know? Yeah. The one, the key thing about Lionsgate there is that we are a small enough place that you're not really very siloed. Right. It, every A lot of people wear a lot of different hats. We get to do a lot of different things. That's one of the things that keeps me at Lionsgate, honestly. I love that. Is not only the people I work with, I love them, but I have an ability to do so much more in my role here than I would ever be able to do at a different studio, right? At least at least in the position I'm at right now. And I think that that's something that I really I'm, I pride myself in Lionsgate for. And so you always you keep referring to a model. Is it like when I think yeah. of obviously a financial model, I think of an Excel spreadsheet with like all yep. these different boxes and formulas and sheets. Mm -hmm. Is it like that or is it like more of a report, but that it's called a model? I'm just kind of curious what that looks like. The model itself is what you're talking about. It's, it's a page okay. with numbers and formulas and all that stuff. The package, the green light package is more of like the report that you would have, or like, you know, the evaluation. Uh -huh. That has all the other stuff in there. Very, very The model itself is very Excel-heavy. Excel-heavy. So you must be really yeah. good at Excel and creating models. Not as good as I like to be. 
but that's what I'm saying. So like the, the work that I was doing at PwC as, as an accountant, like that kind of set me up to do yeah, this. Yeah, I wouldn't have the skills of A hundred percent. Well, it's cool. It's great that you, I mean, I really love hearing about all this. Obviously, you could tell that I'm like yeah. asking all these questions, but just, I mean, there's so many parts to it. One, I love hearing just the pivot and like in, in going, okay, well, this is the industry I want to be in. How do I take my skill sets yeah. and apply it, which is totally possible for everyone to do. Um, yeah, not everyone absolutely. does it, but it's possible. Um, yeah. And then, you know, sort of on top of that, just hearing so much about like what your position entails and, and what goes into it and how much it affects the whole development process. Because I think a lot of people, you know, it's kind of what you said earlier. There's just a lack of knowledge of what all these roles are like. And that's one of the reasons right. why I wanted to personally create this podcast was that I wanted to shed absolutely. light on all these different roles. And I want people who are like who are just starting out or even in their first couple positions going, well, what else is there? Like, what else can I apply for? I I, yeah. I think one of the reasons why I created this podcast, I, I had a friend a few years ago, she had said something like um, she was applying, she was in the entertainment industry. She was in, she just had her entry level job. I forgot what it was, probably something to do with marketing and, and entertainment. And she was like, yeah, I'm looking for a new job. And I was like, oh, great. Tell me what job. You know, I'd love to see if I know anyone or I can help out at all. And she was like, well, I, I'm actually just looking at jobs that are out there and seeing if I yeah. think I can do them. And she really just didn't have the like an understanding of what was out there, of what roles that yeah. she could at least be intentional about, right? Because there's the, there is almost a lack of knowledge, especially in the entertainment industry, as to what each role entails and and what roles you can have leading up to that. So this is my attempt to shed light on that. So thank you so much. This is no, absolutely. I think that's you're providing a very valuable service. And I would say to anyone who's questioning how to do anything or where to start, ask people for coffees. I just go and have a coffee, like meet people, go out, go where you think they're going to be, go to a museum or something, and we go to an event. Uh, people love talking about themselves. Just they ask do. them about it. This yeah. is my version of that, by the way. This is my I version of no, being like, fantastic. I'm not offering you coffee. You're in, you're in LA and I'm in New right, York, right. but I can do this and I appreciate that conversation. So thank you so much. 100%. Me too. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate, I appreciate it. it. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend in entertainment you know would love it. Let me know what you've learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram at Mentors on the Mic. I love reading your messages. Uh, you can also find me at, at Michelle Simone Miller on Instagram. On both accounts, I'll be sharing even more information about our mentors. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. It makes it easier for people to find our podcast, and I love reading your reviews. So thank you so much, and I'll see you next week.